Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I don't know about you guys, but for me, a game is 10 times more exciting when I'm putting my own money on it. Sometimes I have a gut feeling about a matchup, and sometimes I'm just betting on my team because they're my team. The greatest team in the history of organized sports, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Regardless, whether you've been betting for years or you're ready to play for the first time, my bookie is your best bet this season. If you're the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, try a parlay. For instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week, parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. Show me the loot. If you're going to bet this season, do the smart thing and go to mybookie.ag because no one gives you more ways to win. They let you do prop bets, and they let you change your bets, they let you bet in-game and everything like that. If you really want to support your team this season, don't just sit on the sidelines. Get in the game with MyBookie.ag, and if you join right now, MyBookie will double your first deposit. Just use the promo code CHAIR to activate the offer. That's C-H-A-I-R to double your cash. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. Hey, uh, Coach, for your viewers out there who don't know, Uh, I'm David Baker, president of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And on behalf of all of those of us who love this game and the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Coach, I want to thank you for all you've done for the game, for all you're going to do for the game. And I want to welcome you to Canton, Ohio, where your bronze legacy. Hey, folks, keep this in mind. Out of 29,000 people who played the game, coached the game, or contributed to the game, Bill Cowher is now the 327th one in the Hall of Fame, 182nd living one, Coach Speech. You know, I just tell him, V, I says, I've come to grips. I'm okay um, if it doesn't happen. Um, I've been so blessed. And I would just say this, for those eight candidates, every one of you deserve to be there. Um, Football is a total team sport. Um, I had some great players, some great coaches, the best organization in football. Um, I've lived a blessed life. I've come to the best network on TV. It's a family here like it was a family that we had there. And to have to give back to something, to the game of football, it's been a part of my life. The virtues that it teaches you, the morals that you have the obligation to move on, the platforms that we have. Um, You know, I'm a blessed man. And I've been very blessed to be surrounded by some very special. Welcome to the Steelers Outpost Podcast, a proud member of the Armchair All-Americans Network. It's January 12th, 2020. This is Tom coming to you from Sawdust Studios at the Washington, D.C. Outpost, and Nick joins me from the Houston Outpost. And of course, we have some very exciting news to report, and we'll talk about it. 
but the immediate news is that the Ravens were ravaged by the Titans yesterday at home, 28-10. to 10. Okay, we will talk about that. I don't know if we want to talk about some more Steelers stuff uh, first. You and I were talking about that before we fired up the podcast with our um, five-second game planning. But uh, I will say, oh, it's so sweet. I don't even know if it's schadenfreude when the Ravens lose. It's just justice. But, yeah, we can get into that a little bit more later. But hail the Titans right now. They've taken down the Soviets and the Nazis in subsequent weeks. And I'm relishing in it. Let's get to the big news, though. Uh, that clip you heard at the beginning of the podcast is Bill Cowher's surprise as he is presented or he's informed that he has become the 25th Steeler inducted into the Hall of Fame. <sighs> Steel, man. Steel. I mean, he he choked me up. It was awesome. First things first. I'm so glad he got in. I thought he would get in. Um, I do think that just based on his merits, he deserves it. So how many championship games did he play in? At le- or did he coach for? At least four, right? If not five? Obviously two Super Bowl appearances, one loss to the Cowboys. We won't talk about that. And then the glorious victory, Ben's sophomore year against the Seattle Seahawks. And just as a coach, I mean – the, the 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 stats are Hall of Fame worthy. Obviously, I know that you you'll probably get into his wins, his actual stats in a minute here. But for me, the big thing that stands about stands out about Bill Cower is that he created two completely different Super Bowl teams with one franchise. I mean, I don't even think they had really any players in common between the 2005 team and the 96 team that lost to the Cowboys. And they're both defensively focused teams. And Bill Cower developed plenty of Hall of Fame caliber talent defensive players. Um, But to be able to take two totally separate teams to the Super Bowl and then really set the Steelers up for their, their next Super Bowl win when Tomlin, Ben, and company beat the Cardinals in the Super Bowl, you know, some people tease Tomlin for winning the Super Bowl with Cower players. I mean, that's just sort of an asinine reduction of what Tomlin did. But Cower did set into motion some of that, um, obviously a huge part of that roster. So to be able to have that sort of sustained success with dramatically different groups of players, to me, is a mark of a great coach. Good point. Let me uh, just quote the stats I have here. 15 seasons as head coach, eight division titles, made the playoffs 10 separate times. I guess you can't do that twice in one year, so 10 times. There you go. Super Bowl twice winning one of them. Second head coach in NFL history to reach the playoffs in each of his first six sec- seasons, uh, the feat previously accomplished by the great Paul Brown. I think another thing that makes him... Like he was, I don't know if you would have called him a lock for the Hall of Fame, but he he did seem to me like a likely candidate because a he has the resume. I mean, you have once you get that Super Bowl on there, your um, likelihood yeah, of making it leaps up, of course. And then especially since he made two in different eras, like I said, but also that jaw. He's got a jaw for the Hall of Fame. He's got the jaw. When you think of jaws in the NFL, as I often do. There's really only one guy that comes to mind. After Vance McDonald, it's Bill Cower. 
Bill Cowher is the man. And I think that, so we have this discussion a lot, Dad, on like, who should make the Hall of Fame? What's What should be the requirements? Is it players who are just simply the most dominant if you're able to remove the context of the teams they played for or like someone like a Joe Thomas who his team never won a game, but the guy's a left tackle. And if you know how to analyze football, you can look at the guy and see how dominant he was and say, well, plain and simple, this guy was just dominant. He should make the Hall of Fame. Terrell Davis, oh, it was a short career, but while he was in, he broke like every major rushing record in a short period of time that you could, you know, with 2,000-yard season and his playoff rushing statistics were out of this world. Or... Is somebody who makes the Hall of Fame somebody who's like a an integral part of the history of football? Like two people um, kind of show that, uh, kind of embody that to me. Julian Edelman and Heinz Ward are two guys who I think about. Like, well, when you tell the history of football, Heinz Ward, multi, uh, uh, multiple Super Bowl wins as really the face of the Steelers franchise. He's so synonymous with the Steelers. And then pretty much inarguably the number one greatest blocking wide receiver of all time. And then Julian Edelman, boo, uh, a guy with unreal playoff stats and huge moments in the playoffs that are undeniable and will never be forgotten throughout the history of time. But at, but never at any point was he a dominant number one receiver and never at any point was Heinz Ward like a top five receiver in the NFL. But their stories are so essential that they have these Hall of Fame arguments. I think Bill Cowher has the story and the statistics. Just with his personality, I mean, and the job. Well, speaking of the judge, before we go on, don't you think that would be a magnificent Mount Rushmore sculpture if there's room? It would be too could sharp. We do that? Could we do dangerous. The jaw would be we, too sharp. Could we Photoshop that into a and see what that would look like? Maybe start a we could start a Kickstarter campaign. That'd be brilliant. And I keep saying jaw. People are probably listening to the podcast saying it's chin. It's the chin. Well, it's the whole package, you guys. You can't have the chin without the jaw. And he just yeah, is such a recognize another stealer who's so physically recognizable with that scowl and that uh, demeanor, which is so interesting because the Steelers, obviously three coaches and and basically, well, you know, since 1969 or whenever Chuck Knoll got hired, I, I was born in 1990, you guys. I don't have all the dates exactly down, but they have Knoll, who is devoid of personality. He was kind of famously cold. He's sort of the disciplinarian, almost Belichickian type of coach. And then the next two guys are hired in their early to mid-30s and Bill Cowher and Mike Tomlin and are famously good with players and good players coaches and have these um, personalities that are really recognizable. Of course, Cowher is always legitimately foaming at the mouth. I mean, he's spitting on people. I, I watched a replay on Twitter today of a moment when the Steelers lost uh, a game in the final moments because of an illegal 12 men on the field call where Bill Cower actually got a printed out um, picture of the, the, like the play that happened where they got called for 12 men on the field showing that the Steelers only had 11 men on the field and this guy, his jaw was sticking out a good foot in front of his nose and he's yelling and spitting all over these refs unintentionally waving the piece of paper at him uh, i guess the vikings kicked the game-winning field goal and bill cower goes to continue to berate this poor dumb simple official and he then shoves the piece of paper with the picture in the referee's pocket and walks off the field and so he was known for that anger but he was also known as like 
it wasn't an anger like like he's an asshole. He was a good guy, and players really liked him. I think chin, jaw, mandible, any of those are appropriate. Mandible. Hey, you mentioned this. You, you mentioned their age. Did you know Chuck Noll was uh, 37 when he was hired? You know, right. He, he right. wasn't ancient okay. either. They, they rolled some dice on some younger guys. Look, I just um, wanted to comment on what you said about who should go in the Hall of Fame. Right. The rules should be whatever the governing body says they are. And it's hard to be consistent over the years. Look at the problems that baseball has. What do you do with Pete Rose? I mean, that's just been such a controversial topic. Do we rate the player? Do we rate his, you know, him as a human being? But coming back to football, I mm-hmm. think there is room for both guys with meteoric careers who are at the 95% level for four or five years. And I think there should be credit for durability, the Heinz mm-hmm. Wards. I mean, to stay at the 80% level for 10 years at some of these positions. And the third category, I think that the guys who lose out are the guys who are not on teams with any kind of, um, with any kind of positive spotlight. I think the, the right. people who are rating this thing, do you think they're spending time going through um, teams the that haven't achieved much? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would take some, a lot of special sp- splash plays. It takes a winning percentage to get their attention. How do you dig through the muck and mire to figure out whether a guy would have been good on a good team. I mean, I actually feel bad for some of these guys. Yeah. You come out of college as a first-round pick, and you just go to Loserville automatically. Like, yeah, what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen in Cincinnati next year? Well, hopefully, nothing good. I'm sorry, Joe Burrow is such a good guy, but you know, they're going to have to Cincinnati him, and he's going to suck if we have any luck at all. However you look at, it, I think Coward belongs in there. You're right. I mean, how many, how many Super Bowls <laughs> are there? I mean. It, if you win a super, if you get into a Super Bowl, it definitely puts you in the conversation. And given his winning percentage, right. let me go back to there. It was, I, I did a side by side. So, Noel, Noel coached in 342 regular season games. He won 56 percent of them. Cower coached in 100 games fewer. It just tells you like Noel just hung on. <laughs> he did. Nobody's going to get that job. He was he's a sixty two percent winner and Tomlin at two hundred seven games has won sixty four percent of his games. So every time we get a coach, a little higher winning percentage. Nice. That's that's the mark of improvement. Although Except Chuck Noll unfortunately <laughs> Super Bowls. We don't well, have to talk about it. When him. you look at when you look at the playoff wins, it progressively goes down. Chuck Knoll sixty seven percent, Cowher fifty seven, and Tomlin fifty three. Well, well, fire Tomlin, I guess, right? I mean that's just unacceptable. What is John Harbaugh's won one playoff <laughs> game in 10 years or something like that, right? Was it against us? Uh, yeah, we can talk about John Harbaugh a little bit. There's some good side-by-side uh, Twitter comparisons. of. There's even Ravens fans out there. Th- this is the whole concept of everybody shouldn't have a microphone, and what you see on Twitter isn't representative of the majority of intelligent life forms. Or, but also, like, people don't pay attention to football or giving opinions on football. Like, there are actual humans who were saying fire Harbaugh last night after their loss. People don't know what they're talking about. But, um, yeah, back to what you were saying about the requirements to get in the Hall of Fame. That, you, made, you made a compelling case for the Heinz Wards and the, I don't want to say Edelman. I mean, if he's not on steroids, he can't do anything. But he is a good example because people even brought that up. It's undeniable what he's done in the playoffs, and he's made some unbelievable plays. But I think if you truly know how to analyze football players and how to break them down, watch them on film and see what a player 
offers from a physicality standpoint and a mental standpoint that you could have never said that Julian Edelman is one of the ten, there there weren't ten other guys that could have gotten plugged into that slot position in New England and did amazing. It's not taking away from Julian Edelman, but let's not get out of control because he played in this phenomenal system with Tom with Tom Brady. Again, he was really good, but could have Antonio Brown done that plus more? Yeah, I think we all know that, right? Or you know whoever Hopkins Hill. Thomas, any of these guys. But my stance has been recently, like, I think that it should just be for the freakishly best players like the, you know, Alan Fanicus, 10-time all-pro type guys. The people who are just so dominant that it's undeniable. Even Terrell Davis, I'm like, he only played a couple years and led his team to two Super Bowls because they jumped on his back and his numbers reflected too and just being on the field with him, which I was not, but you can see like, oh, this guy's just better than other people. It is like when Troy was playing for the Steelers. It's like this guy is moving in fast motion. He is so clearly more talented than the rest of the players and put it together with the mental side too, of course. You know, we're not talking about Jamarcus Russell, somebody with a big arm. And that's kind of been my theory recently. But you do make a good point because it's like, I'm not trying to downplay the impact of a Heinz Warder or Julian Edelman, but if you have those guys on your team, year by year, you see the Super Bowl winners, they have some of those guys. And Heinz Ward really increased your chances of winning a Super Bowl with what he brought as a total package. And I'm just thinking, like, if you were able to take away the eras and and just, like, have some fantasy world where you could take all the Hall of Fame players and, and you know, it didn't matter, the, you know, the advances in nutrition and training and size and everything. It's like, how could Heinz Ward be on the field with the team filled with Hall of Famers, it's like, yeah, he'd all, he wouldn't dominate, but he'd hold his own, and he'd probably knock someone out of the game. So this book I'm reading by Mike Lombardi is talking now about Belichick and one of his, it's probably not just unique to him, but he talks about hidden yards. When a gunner right. goes down and breaks up, you know, he get, breaks through three guys and he downs the ball in the one yard, that's like a 19-yard turnaround Uh for the team kicking the ball. And I think of Heinz Ward as one of the immeasurables is how many yards after catch did other receivers get because he was such a hard blocker or even running backs can't be counted, right? Right. Well, think about this too. The fact that Heinz Ward didn't give a crap about going across the middle of the field and getting nailed, defenses had to pay more attention to that because before the pass interference rules and the hitting with the helmet rules were changed, Offensive coordinators had to call games differently. You couldn't just send guys over the middle all the time because they will get sent to the hospital. And quarterbacks had to be aware, like, I can't just keep throwing it into the middle because you used to be able to knock receivers out of the game. You remember that? When we used to watch, when I was growing up, they constantly talked about that. And guys like Ray Lewis, when you play the Ravens, you knew a big part of the game was like, you're not going to get a lot over the middle because you'll die. But with Heinz Ward, defensive coordinators had to account, well, they have this psychopath, this indestructible psychopath on their team who will go across the middle. So now we have to worry about the middle of the field more than we we usually do on a week-to-week basis. And that opens up other parts of the field. So the hidden yards point is a great great, uh, point. 
Well, going back to the one of the other things is how long of a career does somebody have to be dominant in to qualify under what you know, kind of what you the way you were thinking. There's mm-hmm. a, a bit of a controversy about whether Lynn Swan performed at a high level, a high enough level to qualify for the Hall of Fame. And I'm looking at his stats right now. Do you have any clue as to what his, well, the stats his how many yards he had in the season where he had the most yards? I mean, whatever, some small number compared to what people have now, but they threw 12 times a game. No, he had 880 yards in his, his most prolific year. But in his nine-year nine year career, he had 5,400 total yards. Isn't that crazy when guys are getting 1,000 yards? Of, I mean, high yards per reception and magnificent plays and made those plays at the, you know, made big-time plays in big-time games. So I, I mean, I definitely think, first of all, a nine-year career is a pretty significant career for a wide receiver. So I'm not saying he just had a short window. But, you know, given the era, they just weren't passing the ball as much back then. Yeah, you have to compare. Well, go, like, check the other top uh, yardage guys from that decade. And it's not like there's going to be anyone who would even make the top ten list for, like, this year for wide receivers, right? I- I'd be willing to go on a limb and say that. And and there's also a different thing with, I mean, Stallworth was really the volume catch guy. Swan was, like... He was the guy, the hidden yardage behind that guy is insane because you knew you couldn't just let him go catch that deep ball. He's the kind of, he'll catch four passes and three touchdowns in a game, right? And that's where it comes into what I'm saying. Like, at a certain point, you have to know what you're watching. Like, it can, it's not baseball where the stats tell the entire story because there's such an enormous sample size and there's nothing else that you're relying on. If you hit the ball, like, it's really just up to you. You get to play all kinds of pitchers. You get a million chances to hit it. You don't need a quarterback to throw it to you. doesn't matter what other corners are on the field. doesn't matter if another coordinator, you know, triple covers you or double covers you. They don't get to throw in two pitchers. You know, the stats are what they are in baseball. And in basketball, again, huge sample size. You get to go one-on-one constantly on offense. So eventually you're going to get your points. Football stats... They lie tremendously, and so you have to know what you're watching. And the fact is, you can throw it up to Lynn Swan, and there's not a single cornerback in the entire league who could, who like there's there's no such thing as perfect coverage on him because he'll catch it over your head. Doesn't matter how good you are. So that was like, yeah, you got to know what you're watching there. So I'm with you. Um, but either way, just bringing it back to Cower, uh, we spent yeah we kind of we kind of. Uh, tangent. I think we covered that. We did. The last thing I'll say is just credit to the NFL for being creative. I was sitting on a chair playing Madden, waiting for my laundry to get done. The um, Ravens game, uh, the pregame on mute on my iPad over to the side. I'm living, you know, the dream there. There's Madden on the TV. There's football. Hopefully the Ravens losing, (laughs) which as we know happened on my iPad, and I see Bill Cowher, I see David, um, I forgot the guy's name, but he's he's like nine feet tall, and he was wearing a giant red suit. It's hard to miss. David something, the president of the Hall of Fame, he's the guy who every year when you see those videos of uh, this giant man knocking on the hotel doors of the Hall of Fame finalists, he's the one who tells them that they made it in, and he shakes their hand, and their family's usually crying and laughing and yelling behind the player, right? So I see this guy talking to Bill Cowher, and I'm thinking, oh, cool, yeah, maybe they're doing a little segment, Bill's up for the Hall of Fame this year. And I start realizing just based on uh, the face, the faces Bill Cowher was making, and you see Nate Burlington in the background clapping and looking really happy, and I'm like, are they, 
are they putting him into the Hall of Fame right now? And I turned off mute on the iPad, and sure enough, they were putting him in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if they've ever done that, like put someone into the Hall of Fame on live TV as a surprise before the rest of the inductees get in, and then Bill Cowher's wife and one of his daughters uh, came out. They were on set as well, and that was awesome, and I give the NFL credit because they're pretty stodgy and stuck in their ways, and it usually takes like five years for them to change whatever particular issue unless they're trying to overreact to make life easier for Drew Brees. Um, but uh, that was a nice piece of showmanship there, and that was a really cool moment, and I give them credit for, for doing it, even though I do think this year they, they were taking in more people into the Hall of Fame than they usually do, uh, but credit to them for being creative. The Steelers Outpost podcast wants to make sure everybody's armed for their next Trivial Pursuit game. His name is David Baker. There we go. David Baker. I should have got that. So there are some statistics that do not lie, and the two statistics that do not lie are two divisional games, one 27 to 10 and the other one 28 to 10. And I have to say, this has been a blast. I usually sort of stop watching and I'll, I'll look at highlights today after yeah. during the playoffs, but I watched a good, good part of both games. I have to say, in the 49er Vikings game, the only reason I tilted towards San Francisco is because we had George Kittle on our fantasy team last year and he put us into the top three, <laughs> which paid our dues for this year. Yeah, but it was a. George Kittle. Blowout San Francisco time of possession 38 and a half minutes. Kirk Cousins sacked six times. I mean, this was just insane. And the San Francisco rushing attack 186 yards to the Vikings 21. That's not a lot. And the Vikings are a phenomenal rushing team with with a great running back in Dalvin Cook. Gary Kubiak running that zone blocking, that classic. Mike Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan, Mike from back in the Denver Broncos days, that zone rushing attack that if you can get a decent running back in there, it'll tell, tear people up. But um, I don't want to say that much about this game because you're right, it was a blowout. 27 to 10 doesn't even do it justice. The Vikings had pretty much no chance. Obviously, San Francisco is a far mightier team in every aspect. But I do actually think this is a good chance for you and me to bump up a segment that we were going to talk about later, which is the Cleveland Browns' new head coach. They hired Kevin Stefanski, the Vikings' offensive coordinator, uh, yesterday, or today, actually, at the time of recording this podcast. And I am not a Kevin Stefanski fan, and it's not just because of their putrid showing in this divisional playoff game. It's just because I've watched them a couple of times on national TV. They're a team that really intrigues me. I like Kirk. I think he's a good, not great quarterback, but he is good. And then Thielen and Diggs are obviously studs, and so is Dalvin Cook. And that defense has declined a little bit over the years, but they have a bunch of studs. Long story short, they have a really competitive roster, and watching them play offense, you guys, it's not just us. There isn't just one Randy Feetner out there. They're all over the NFL because Kevin Stefanski, I think some people on Twitter are overreacting, saying this is, well, some people are saying this hire sucks for the Browns. Other people are coming out and saying, you can't just judge Kevin Stefanski off of one bad game. And I'm saying, I judge Kevin Stefanski off of lots of bad games. So just for some uh, context, he came in last year for like the second half of the season or the end of the season for the Vikings, and their offense uh, improved a lot. But keep in mind, that happens with coordinator changes, sometimes midseason, just like no matter what. Like even if the guy isn't a great... Freddie Kitchens did that, and then look what happened the next year. But... 
when I watch them play, the Minnesota Vikings have six plays. It's zone left, zone right, a bootleg off of each one of those, and, and like a go route. And I've seen them call plays in situational, like when they played San Francisco or whoever was earlier in the season, and they had a third down and four to try and win the game, and they call like a one-man route with other guys clearing out. There's no, they don't use hardly any motion at all, no misdirection, same kind of thing. And when you watch this game, they're playing the 49ers. The 49ers know that the Vikings Everything comes off of the run game, and almost every big play they've had this season is a bootleg where Kirk Cousins fakes the handoff and rolls out to his left and throws deep. They only have a couple things that they do, and what did Kevin Stefanski do? Run first down, they'd gain no yards. Run second down or try and throw it to Dalvin Cook, gain no yards, and then get into third and eight, third and ten with an offensive line that can't block and puts Kirk Cousins in these bad positions to succeed. So... After a little ramble here, sorry, Deb. Uh, that's kind of my opinion on on Stefanski. Is he's very predictable. He's not creative, and anything that the Vikings did well was due to Gary Kubiak and that zone blocking see, uh, scheme that we've seen work so many times over the years. So that's why I don't. I I can't believe they're taking Stefanski as a coordinator or as a coach, especially when Josh McDaniels is out there, Eric Bieniemy from the Chiefs is out there, guys who have had real success. And it got me into a conversation on Twitter where we're talking about, well, maybe the head coach, and let me know what you think about this, maybe the head coach, he doesn't have to be a great uh, strategic mind. Maybe it's just more important that he's good with players, good with organization, and good with running a team because a lot of the great head coaches are more along those lines. Bill Parcells was like that. He had great guys like Belichick running the defense for him. Mike Tomlin's like that. Um, John Harbaugh's like that. Uh, A lot of guys are, uh, as long as you have good assistant coaches. So I think there's something to be said for that, but I don't, it, it doesn't inspire me when you take a guy who didn't even have success as, as, as his, uh, you know, on his side of the ball. Though I guess Mike Tomlin's Minnesota Vikings defense and his one year being a coordinator didn't rank that high either. It's just a weird hire to me. This will go back to what I was saying, I think, last week. This, this could be the Peter principle. A guy who's successful as a salesman is not necessarily the guy who should be the sales manager. This guy has been with the Vikings since 2006 in a variety of positions, which I, I think is a positive. He's tight ends coach, quarterback yeah, coach, running true. back coach. So tons of experience. His coaching tree is not that impressive. Mike Childress, Leslie Frazier, Mike Zimmer. So it's yeah, great he had all this good. experience on the it's great he had um, all this experience, but it was with one team. And I think there's an advantage to guys moving around and seeing some more systems, even though he had played for these three different coaches. Mm-hmm. It's unknowable what it's like to be a head coach. I think he could see what, you know, it, it's great if you have a good example and a model to judge from. And I, I have my doubts as to whether these head coaches are hands off on the area of the game that they really they came from or loved. You know, I uh, now that I'm. I have some responsibility in my job, in my right. office. <laughs> I still, even though theoretically I'm in charge, I just like to talk to the people in the departments I used to work in. Yeah. The finance, the finance guys. 
Well, I'll say this. Chris Sims the other day had his I'm dad. kidding. I know some people, were, the marketing people, there's one guy in particular, Arnofo, if you're listening. I love you, man. <laughs> yeah, we're joking. That's funny how we have to... Uh, I used to have to give some of those disclaimers, too, when I was working at this other job and saying, oh, I'm not actually doing what I'm saying. I am. I'm trying to make people laugh. But either way, I do take your point, though. You know, These guys, they have to be hands-on to an extent, especially if they climb the rung in a certain department, whether that's accounting or offensive coordination, if you will. Although Chris Sims just had his dad, Phil Sims, on the podcast, and they uh, talked about how Parcells, you know, when Phil Sims was the quarterback for the Giants, Parcells the coach, Bill, uh, Belichick on the defensive side. I forget who the offensive coach was, but he was he was obviously very good at his job as well. And he talked about how Parcells would spend his time split in between all the meeting rooms, and he would just give like greater. And this is from um, Chris Sims on Button Podcast. If you guys want to listen to that, but he said. Um, like Parcells would dip into the meeting and he would just have higher concepts that he would talk about. Like if they were playing the Redskins, he would say, listen, we're not throwing at Daryl Green. So here's your plays on the whiteboard that we usually like uh, to run. These are going to go to Daryl Green. We're crossing this out. No, no, no. This one, nope, gone, gone. We're not doing this. By the way, their defensive line is weak. You need to concentrate on running at them. I'm going to let you handle the rest. I'm out of here. I'm doing the same thing for the defensive side. And... He talked about that, his ability to organize, his ability to motivate, his ability to time manage and just dip his hand into each element rather than maybe a Kyle Shanahan or Sean Payton who are literally designing the offensive game plan. And you and I have talked about that a lot over the last two years, three years, uh, through the lens of Keith Butler on defense and through the lens of Feetner on offense and talking about Tomlin, how I think that it's pretty hard to argue that the guy's anything but a really good coach. And I also think it's hard to argue that he gives you any strategic advantage whatsoever. Like, that's where the difficulty comes from. And you and I have liked seeing coaches who, uh, you know, provide that for you. Like, if you're on Kyle Shanahan's team, your offense is going to be good. Just point blank, period. It's not necessarily a negative that the head coach dips into a particular area. And it, and it would be a loss if he wasn't sharing his, his expertise, it does. It is a tricky game when you hire a guy to be your offensive coordinator and you have opinions yourself. You be, you better come in with a good understanding about how you're going to work together. Because even the way you just yeah. described Parcells, he was he was scratching a lot of stuff off the whiteboard. You would assume that a a sharp offensive coordinator wouldn't have had those on the whiteboard to start with. So he did deep in, dip into some of the tactics. Right. Of course, I'm not saying be. You're not going to touch the tactic, tactics whatsoever. But at that point, he dips out of the room and say, here's our general strategy. Now you get down on here and figure out the exact six plays we're going to use to exploit their second cornerback with, you know, whatever it is, with route combinations or whatever it is. And But it speaks to your points. Like, yeah, maybe the great salesperson isn't the great sales manager, but sometimes – somebody who's maybe not a great salesperson actually is better at being a sales manager. Um, now, I don't know if, if that's true or not, but guys like Harbaugh, uh, everybody knows he was a special teams coach. The advantage of being a special teams coach is that you work with offensive and defensive players and you need to understand, and you work sort of with offense and defense. So you understand more of the personnel. You have to deal with more people than just your core group of guys, especially just dealing with your starters. You're dealing with a ton of different guys. So there's an advantage to having your hand and, and each bucket on the team. And that sometimes can lend to making a good head coach. And you made that point about Stefanski. He has worked in a lot of different areas on that team. So maybe that'll be an advantage to him. But 
And honestly, if he could lure Kubiak to Cleveland, then we should be worried because Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt over there, that would be a perfect system for them. When Baker Mayfield did so great over the second half of last season, it was when Freddie Kitchens took over as OC and they went to like the wishbone offense and it was play action and run game and they were extremely successful. So I'm sure that's what lured the Browns towards taking him. I don't necessarily think Kevin Stefanski is the reason why that run game and play action worked in Minnesota. And let's just hope that that's true and that it doesn't work. And screw you guys. Go Steelers. By the way, I was trying to apply this conversation to what we weren't talking about Freddie Kitchens last year. I just don't remember spending any time on him. But I I pulled up his page. You see a picture of this guy? And then when you read oh, that he was the quarterback for Alabama <laughs> yeah. and threw for 4,600 yards and 30 touchdowns, you're, you just can't reconcile this picture to an Alabama quarterback. No, it looks like he ate one. Did you ever see the show? And I've told you about the show Last Chance You on Netflix. It's yeah. uh, like Mississippi Community College that you know, these guys, like half these kids will go to the pros if they can get their academics together because yeah. they're unbelievable players. But the guy who coaches that is a former quarterback himself. And he is he look, looks kind of like Fred. He's massive. He's Let's quite see, large. I'm trying to look if any of those last chance you players. So these are for like really talented players oh, who have like great issues or yeah. whatever. They end up they come from Penn State and they end up going to Tennessee or you know a lot of these guys don't get in in the first place or they get studs? into a Division one. Are there any studs? Uh, Ronald Ollie? No, it doesn't look like there's many people who. I just started watching three years ago, so I don't know who's actually gone through, but they're definitely. Guys playing in at Alabama and other Division One schools. That's cool. Hopefully, they're actually getting some time. You know, everyone's so to be worth it. Let's move on to the Titans Ravens game, which was statistically yes. dominated by the Dirty Birds, five hundred and thirty offensive yards to three hundred. But the secret weapon, who's been escalating throughout the season, Derrick Henry, one hundred ninety-five yards on top of a one hundred eighty-two yard uh, rushing performance last week. Where did this, you know, now I'm hearing all the, all the stories about him in high school and everybody was afraid to play him. He had one 100-yard game this season up until week 10. Were they just telling him, to, were they holding him back? Did he have a broken ankle? What was going on? Yeah, so this is, this is bizarre, Dad, because you can probably actually might want to check the stats for last season while you're at it so I can make sure I'm being accurate. They did the identical thing last right. season where they don't use Derrick Henry till halfway through the year. Now, also, remember, Ryan Tannehill was made the quarterback halfway through the year, and that's when this team really took off because Marcus Mariota's not good, unfortunately. Good guy, not a good NFL quarterback. So uh, I heard other people asking that question, too, like, where did Derrick Henry come from? And why aren't, you know, actually, let me rephrase that. It's not where did he come from. It's why aren't we talking about this guy? This guy should have been the first team all pro running back. We don't talk about him as much. Oh, maybe it's because he plays for Tennessee, et cetera, et cetera. My answer is no, because they don't, they put him in bubble wrap for the first half of the year every year. And then for the second half of the year, he's always the leading rusher in the NFL. And he's phenomenal. And I don't know why they don't use him all year long, but maybe they're looking like geniuses right now because they give him the ball 50 times a game. And now he's going to... Uh, hopefully bulldoze his way even farther in the playoffs. But those, the yardage by Baltimore, completely mop-up time. Completely mop-up time. They were stifled. They were, uh, they were turning the ball over. My quick synopsis of this game, besides the fact that it 
it wasn't anywhere close to, you know, Steelers. It wasn't even how I feel after a Steelers regular season win, but there was some serious joy there. It was fun. Here's what happened. Number one, I think this is a perfect kickoff point for us to talk about the classic rest versus rust discussion. The Ravens locked up the first seed early. They sat all their starters and still beat the crap out of us in the last week of the season. And then Lamar and the other starters didn't play for a couple weeks. And then they got on the field. And P. Butch, our cousin Pat, made a great point because him and I were talking all year about, okay, it looks like the Ravens are kind of clearly on a collision course for the number one seed. Should they rest their starters? And we've talked about this in the past because the Steelers have been in this situation recently a couple times. And Pat made a good point. He said he... He was uh, adamant all year that they need to sit Lamar and the starters if they lock up that one seed because he says it might be a little bit more risky for like a passing team to risk their starters because pass game is based on timing and everything like that. But Lamar, it's a run game. And he's, and of course they throw the ball a little bit, but it's all predicated off of the runs and the RPOs. And you don't, like, if you take a couple weeks off, you're still the fastest person on the field who's the best juker. So he made a good point. Um, But I'll say this, a couple things happened. Number one, clearly rusty. There were a ton of drops by the receivers for the Ravens, and a lot of those drops were passes they should have caught, but passes that were fluttering and behind them by Lamar. So Lamar was off himself, and they were a little bit rusty, sort of like the Steelers were against the Jaguars when they came out flat in the first half of that divisional playoff game a few years ago. And then the Steelers shook the rust off and absolutely erupted in the second half, but it was too little too late. But So the Ravens were rusty, and they ran in to a team that pops up like every two or three years in the NFL. When one of these six-seed teams like puts it together halfway through the season and basically realizes we have to win every single game to get in the playoffs— So they're already in this playoff mindset. They're like an early 2000s, late 90s team where they're a battering ram. They have the best running back in the NFL right now. And they're so hot. They just beat the New England Patriots in New England. And they are as far away from rusty as you can possibly get. And just even a little rust hurt the Ravens. So the... um, Basically, the Ravens get stopped on their first possession. The Titans go down, and it's basically, I think this was the first possession. It was one of the first two touchdowns. I think it was the first one. It's like third and 15 from the 15-yard line, third and goal from the 15-yard line or something for the Titans. And Tannehill throws a really nice pass one-on-one to Evans in the left corner of the end zone, just sort of like a, it's like half a throwaway. It's like if he catches it, he's on -on one-on-one. Uh, amazing, we'll get a touchdown. If he doesn't, that's okay. It's not risking interception. And this dude makes an unreal Randy Moss one-handed toe-tap catch around the cornerback for, like, a spectacular touchdown. And getting seven points in that fashion to shut up the Baltimore crowd that was, like, audibly loud on my iPad. You could hear them on TV. I mean, they're so loud. I actually went to a Ravens-Titans playoff game, like, 10 years ago, the only playoff game I've ever been to, and it it hurts your ears. It's like being at a concert front row. It's loud in that stadium. And so that play already got you some of the momentum. Then the Ravens get the ball back, and they do what they've been doing the whole year, and they go for it on fourth and one around their own, like, 45-yard line. And I don't think they've been stopped on fourth and one a single time the entire year, and the Titans just make a phenomenal play, and they stop them. 
And the very next play, first down, play action, 45-yard touchdown, bomb. And that just shut the crowd up, and it was such a perfect way to start. And then I know I'm talking a lot here, but I, I, do, I, I love the narrative of what happened in this game. P. Butch and I also talked about this all year. Why the, the reason why the playoffs are so exciting is because there isn't like a Tom Brady or like a Aaron Rodgers Packers sometimes or like a Peyton Manning Colts team where there's just this obvious team that's the one seed and they're going to get to the Super Bowl and they have the quarterback who has the experience and is a stud. There's these weird teams like Baltimore and San Francisco are the two best teams and they're very unconventional. We've never seen an offense like the Ravens and then – Sort of same with the 49ers. We're like, Jimmy G, he's good, but can you count on him? Like, the legends who have dominated the playoffs over the years? Not really. And we said with the Ravens, the one thing about them, I don't know if they can play from behind because they never had to the entire year. The only time they got behind, they got absolutely curb stomped by Patrick Mahomes and the and the Chiefs because... The Ravens are very successful passing the ball with their unconventional offense, but they can't just, like, drop back in the pocket and make a comeback that way. They don't have the receivers, and Lamar doesn't quite have that skill set yet, and that's what happened. Because once they fell down in that 14-3 hole, they just weren't really able to claw out of it. And then Derrick Henry is so freaking phenomenal, and the Titans' defensive and offensive lines really had great days. I think because they were so prepared, they've been in war for nine weeks in a row that the Ravens' weakness was exposed. And, uh, yeah, it was just a perfect storm. It looked like they were playing in quicksand. Like the, the more they fought, the, the deeper they sunk. I mean, to Lamar Jackson, just his inexperienced show, and he got rattled. He had, what did he have, two interceptions, a lost fumble. He was sacked four times. Uh, it just looked like yeah. he kind of fell apart during that game. Let, let me uh, – I did look up the statistics on Derrick Henry. It's actually, it's fascinating. He had two games over 100 yards last year. Two big games, 238 and 170. The year before that, he had one game over 100 yards. So, I don't know. I mean, I don't see any pattern here. Why would you make a guy who's getting 18 yards a carry? I mean, did this guy just starting to emerge exactly. this season? No, you're 100% right. He's been this guy since day one. And there's people like me who have been watching them play like, why don't you give the ball to this guy more? And it is legitimately inexplicable. They try to split with him and Dion Lewis, who goes up to his knee. It's like, Dion <laughs> Lewis is pretty good, but you have Earl Campbell on here. And he's like one of those video game running backs. Um, Earl Campbell. I just call him Earl Campbell now, Derrick Henry where it, he doesn't even move his arms or legs when he runs, and he runs, like, straight up and down and runs past everybody. Corners, safeties, and nobody's fast enough to catch this guy. He ran a 4-5-40, but he's one of those guys who it's like, yeah, but after, once he gets to 50 yards, he really he, he's like a train. He, can't, he cannot be stopped. So there was this, oh, my God, it was so awesome. So I think it was, I guess the Ravens got a field goal. Eventually they made a 14-3. The Titans get the ball back. It's third and one at their own like 30-something yard line, and he just rips off a 66-yard run. He gets the handoff out of shotgun, and the second he gets it, a guy bursts in and tries to tackle him and bounces off like an infant. And then he goes, makes one cut in the hole, and I, you know with this guy, it's so weird because 
Hey, I don't know if you can check this, but see who has like the most like 50 yard runs in the NFL. Cause I'd be shocked this year if it's anybody except for Derrick Henry. Cause he has like a 50 yard touchdown like every other week. And so once he gets past the linebackers, it doesn't look like it, but I've seen it enough to know like, oh, this guy's going at least 50. And sure enough, he goes 66 yards down there. Um, they give him the ball in the very next play for some reason. Then they take him out. They like lose a yard or whatever. And then the guy gets the ball in the Wildcat and throws a Tim Tebow jump pass touchdown to Corey Davis in the back of the end zone. And it really felt like watching a high school game because he he's only 6'3", but he yeah. looks 6'7". And it just really reminds you of watching those high school games where there's this hilariously overdeveloped kid who's just dominant. He's throwing touchdowns. He's kicking the extra point. He's tackling people. He's running for it. And that's basically what Derrick Henry did. And of course, like I mentioned before, I mean, the offensive and defensive lines for the, for the Titans played phenomenal. But I do think the overarching story is Baltimore was obviously rusty and Titans are the hottest team in the NFL. And uh, I'm curious to see what they'll be able to do in the championship. It's just, by the way, dad, they haven't. They didn't pass for a hundred yards in either game. Ryan Tannehill was seven for fourteen, and by the way, he was good. It was a good seven for fourteen. The touchdown, the first touchdown pass was nice. The deep one was beautiful. He had another touchdown, an option run, which he performed to perfection. It was a really nice run, actually. And uh, yeah, he played well. I obviously, I think if you're going to play Patrick Mahomes, and if Patrick Mahomes and that team, or you know, whether it's Deshaun Watson. If those guys can get really hot and put up some points, like you're going to need Tannehill to throw for more than 100 yards. But it wasn't even – them not throwing for 100 yards isn't totally a result of them not trusting Tannehill. It's just that they have Xerxes at running back, and they're just going to let him – he can't be stopped. So you might as well keep giving them the ball. I'm failing to find the, the statistic. Maybe I can on get it. 50-yard runs? Yeah. I'd put, I'd put money on that at mybookie.ag for sure. Yeah, well, it looked like he, since he was the leading running back, uh, that that seems likely. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I even meant to, like, structure that conversation more around the rest versus rust, which I've said over the years, like, I don't have a right answer. I still remember Le'Veon Bell uh, blowing out his knee in the last game of the season against the Bengals, and that rendered us completely useless in the playoffs. You know, Ben and A.B. both had – end of the season injuries that I think ruined very probable Super Bowl runs. So I, I get sitting the players in week 17. You just got to be able to trust that your coaching staff can um, can get them ready to play. But I don't know. Maybe if you're a team like the Ravens who is so based on like their attitude and just we don't care, maybe, maybe you should have played them. But, uh, yeah, it – I, I just think we need to salute that. Oh, oh, the last topic we need to talk about. Steelers fans rooting for the Ravens in the playoffs. Don't do that. Don't. Stop it. What, what's wrong with you? Have some pride. Jeez, that's disgusting. Listen, I know Lamar's cool. It's, pre- it's pretty awesome. He even had like two 30-yard runs during the game last night where it's like, this guy makes my heart flutter. And then I remember what jersey he wears and that he's a probably a terrible human being, all things considered. But you don't root for the Ravens under any circumstance. You should be happy that they're in the playoffs when the Steelers aren't only for the, the standpoint that it gives you something to root against. And now the Titans have beaten the Patriots and the Ravens in subsequent weeks. I, 
hereby grant as chancellor of Steelers Union South uh, a grant permission for the Steelers fans to lightly root for the Titans to win the Super Bowl on account of what they have done for the United States of America over the past two weeks. Well, there you, <laughs> you've assumed the mantle. That's right. But Chancellor. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. We should not be rooting for the dirty birds. Ugh, under no circumstance. You can private, privately sort of enjoy it and like appreciate what he does and be like, hey, he's a cool guy. You know, people, uh, he, he's trying to achieve his dreams out there. That's, that's good for him. Good for you, buddy Lamar. But you don't root for them, okay? And by the way, we know when you're playing with them on Madden. Yeah, we know. Don't do it. Stop. You, you're, not, you're not unseen right now. It's not just Apple and Siri watching you and videotaping you and sending it directly to Langley. It's us in our mind's eye knowing you're out there like, mm, wear the all-black jersey. I can, uh, that, that looks pretty cool. It doesn't look cool. It looks lame. There's a freaking bird on their uniform. A bird. I would step on that bird's f- f- head. Neck, throat, face, I couldn't make up my mind. Whatever it is, the whole thing is going to fit underneath my, sh- my steel-toed boot. Hey, so there's a lot, more, a lot longer episode than I thought. There's a lot of emotion here still, even though the, uh, the placid waters of the off-season face us in the near horizon. Thanks for listening to us. Keep talking to us. Hit us up on Twitter at Steelers Outpost. Shoot us an email at SteelersOutpost at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next week, go Steelers. Okay, bye-bye. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash match. Just go to indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.